Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We're delighted to have you for what I think will be a really fascinating conversation for an event titled Russia as a Strategic Threat, Ukraine, NATO, uh, and Beyond. for this event, we have uh, a, a great set of panelists, um, and uh, this, this I should say that this uh, event actually is a part of a series that we have done. Um, our first report uh, was o- called A War of Attrition, Assessing the Impact of Equipment Shortages on Russian Military Operations in Ukraine that came out earlier this year, and that examines the impact of Russia's growing military equipment and ammunition shortages on the Kremlin's ability to prosecute the war in Ukraine. That's a report that you can find online. Um, And to discuss that report uh, in more detail, uh, we have uh, one of the paper's authors, Paul Schwartz, who is a non-resident senior associate with the CSIS Europe-Russia-Eurasia program. Uh, Paul's research focuses on the Russian military and its defense and security policy. He has been involved in numerous studies on Russia's military strategy, capabilities, and doctrine, and as well as looking at recent campaigns in Ukraine, Syria, and Georgia, as well as Russia's military modernization and arms sales program. Uh, and it's been great to, to work with Paul. Paul, thank you uh, so much for, for joining us. I should also say that uh, that Paul, um, prior to joining CSIS, Paul had a long career in the legal profession at Hogan & Hartson, a DC-based international law firm, and at SAIC. Uh, and Digital Equipment Corporation. Uh, Paul is the sole author of this paper, and we're looking forward to discussing the main findings. Paul, thank you for joining us. Uh, And next, we will also be discussing another uh, excellent report that came out uh, earlier this summer, uh, Agile and Adaptable, U.S. and NATO Approaches to Russia's Short-Term Military Potential, which assesses uh, changes in the Russian military threat to NATO over the short term. Uh, the next two to four years, and provides analysis on how the United States and NATO might adapt their strategies, planning, and posture in response. And to discuss the report, we have two of the fantastic experts that uh, that authored the report. I'll start with Lisa Aronson, uh, who is a research fellow at the Center for Strategic Research uh, at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at NDU, the National Defense University. And her research focuses on European security, and transatlantic defense cooperation. And her interests include NATO, the European Union, NATO partnerships, Black Sea security. We'll actually have an event with Lisa and uh, her other co-author, Jeff Mankoff, on a Black Sea security report that we put out earlier this year that will happen uh, uh, tomorrow. Uh, uh, I was going to say later this week, but thank you for the specificity for tomorrow. Uh, She is also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, where she is affiliated with the Transatlantic Security Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for, for being here with us. Thank you for the invitation. And last, but certainly not least, is John Denny, who is a research professor of joint interagency intergovernmental and multinational security studies at the U.S. Army War College's Strategic Studies Institute. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, an associate fellow at the NATO Defense College, and an adjunct lecturer at American University's School of International Service, 
Previously, John worked for eight years as a political advisor to senior U.S. military commanders in Europe, and prior to that, he spent two years as a strategic planner specializing in U.S. security cooperation and military-to-military relations. Uh, so we have a great uh, cast and crew. John, thanks so much for, for being here as well. Uh, lots of expertise here on the panel. I also want to just uh, say a quick uh, note of thanks to Hannah Note, uh, who was not able to join us today. She is uh, also a senior associate uh, non-resident with, with our program here at CSIS. And her uh, expertise contributed uh, to, to the report that, that John and, and Lisa did. Um, before jumping in and diving into the conversation, uh, let me say uh, this uh, also note uh, a, a note of appreciation that this event was funded by the Russia Strategic Initiative of uh, U.S. European Command, and the views expressed in these publications uh, do not necessarily uh, represent the views of the Department of Defense uh, or the United States government. And let me also say that everyone here uh, is also here in their individual capacity, and their views do not represent those of any other institutions or, or the U.S. government. Uh, so with that sort of the, the form, formalities out of the way, let's dive into the conversation. Paul, let me start with you. Uh, your report, the a War of Attrition, and looking at the impact that will have on Russia's military. Uh, can you tell us a bit more uh, uh, about your report? What are the kind of top conclusions? How is this war of attrition now that I think we can fully identify that is what is happening in Ukraine impacting uh, Russia's military? Thanks very much, Max, and thanks very much to CSIS for hosting this event and for um, helping to sponsor the paper. So this report examines, as you had said, the impact of Russia's growing military equipment losses and its ammunition shortages as a result of uh, the war in Ukraine. And it, it takes a close look at the impact of those on Russia's ability to prosecute the war. And the report focuses on five key weapons categories that are of central importance for Russia's ability to sustain operations. These include main battle tanks, artillery and ammunition, uncrewed aerial vehicles, electronic warfare, and long-range precision strike. For each weapons category, the report examines how the size and composition of that particular weapons portfolio has been changing under the twin influences of attrition as well as sanctions. In the process, the report takes account of Russian efforts to increase defense production, to draw on its large reserves of equipment and storage, as also to obtain weapons and components from other sources, such as Iran and North Korea. Next, for each weapons category, having assessed the, uh, the nature of the changes to the weapons portfolio, it looks at how the reductions in the size, quality, and character of these weapons systems are impacting Russian military operations in Ukraine. Following this, the report examines how Russian equipment shortages are impacting on Russia's ability to conduct operations in other areas beyond Ukraine. And we looked at, the cent at Central Asia, the Caucasus, as well as the Middle East. Finally, the report concludes by briefly examining how long it is likely to take Russia to reconstitute its forces, especially its ground forces, given the massive losses that they have incurred in Ukraine. So bottom line up front, find key findings and conclusions. The report finds that the magnitude of Russian equipment losses and ammunition shortages in Ukraine are having a major adverse effect on the Kremlin's ability to prosecute the war. Defense production is struggling to keep pace with its growing battlefield losses due to sanctions and production capacity limitations. 
As a result, Russia has been resorting to a wide range of stopgap measures to include pulling older systems from storage, old Soviet-era tanks, purchasing weapons from partners like Iran, um, and also taking measures to circumvent sanctions. But such efforts have so thus far fallen well short of what it will take to replenish its forces. And collectively, this is resulting in significant reductions in the size, quality, and character of Russian weapons portfolios and the force itself which in turn is having a major adverse effect on how Russia is able to conduct military operations in Ukraine. The effects have been relatively uneven, however. Russian losses have undermined uh, the, the military's ability to conduct offensive operations far more than they have its ability to conduct defensive operations. For example, heavy losses of tanks and armored vehicles over the, la uh, the first year of the war have significantly undermined its ability to conduct combined arms maneuver. Moreover, another key finding is that Russian equipment losses um, have undermined its ability in some areas more than they have in others. Despite heavy losses, for example, Russia has managed to maintain a reasonably high tempo of drone operations. On the other hand, due to growing ammunition shortages, Russia's ability to maintain and sustain its high rate of fire towards artillery forces uh, have put the put its operations under high duress. By contrast, the Ukrainian military has been able to rely on a steady influx of Western military equipment, ammunition, and other supplies to replenish its forces and preserve its combat power. As a result, this has allowed Ukraine to increasingly level the playing field in the uh, battle space, even as Russian uh, forces continue to incur declines. However, the Kremlin is making a concerted effort to address these problems, and given Russia's enormous pre-war equipment stockpiles, its vast industrial production capability, and its uh, ability to continue to do business with certain countries still willing to sell things to it, Russia has the capacity to reverse this slide over time uh, and to sustain operations in Ukraine, albeit with uh, significant limitations. Meantime, Russia's been forced to draw ever increasingly on its dwindling uh, reserves. Maybe we could uh, unpack one of the systems. So tanks have been sort of front and center uh, in, in, in this war, at least visually with, with uh, the images of Russian tanks being, being destroyed. Um, now, Russia went into this war with a huge stockpile of, 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 of tanks, of especially older tank systems. Now, they've experienced significant losses in the thousands. Um, but what is what will this mean, do you think, going forward for, for Russia? Now, we've, there's been reports in the New York Times that Russia has actually been able to increase its production of tanks from 100 to 200, uh, I believe, a, a year or is it a month? Um, and so Russia is now on, on track to be able to replace some of the tanks that has been damaged. But how, how will the attrition that it's experiencing, at least when it comes to tanks, you think impact it, its military going forward? Mm -hmm. So we looked at this fairly closely as one of the five categories. And combined arms maneuver is, is a central tenet of Russia's way of war, with Russian tank and motorized rifle units leading the way. On paper, at least, Russian tank groupings were particularly well equipped for the, the uh, effort. Uh, Russia entered the war with 2,900 main battle tanks, according to uh, reliable <coughs> estimates. Um, and most, and, and over a thousand of those were Russia's latest frontline systems, the T90M, T80BV, and T72B3. 
uh, all derived from a Soviet lineage, but upgraded significantly uh, prior to the war. However, during the initial invasion, Russia's ability to conduct effective armor maneuver operations really did not pan out except in the south where they made significant gains in uh, coming out of, of, of Crimea. Instead, Ukrainian forces using effective artillery fires as well as a whole array of anti-tank weapons systems uh, inflicted significant losses on Russian tanks and armored vehicles. And this has basically continued throughout the campaign, such that by February 2023, which was uh, when we uh, started drafting this report, Russia had already lost over 1,900 main battle tanks, nearly two-thirds of its original force. Since then, Russian losses have only mounted even further. I checked Oryx just before coming to this event, and they have now lost uh, 2,300 tanks in total. So things continue to decline. Uh, some, some experts from Ukraine that we consulted for this report indicated, based on their observations, Russian, some Russian units are down 60 to 70 percent of their initial complement of, of main battle tanks. In response, Russia has been making efforts to try to make up for its losses. For one, it's uh, been attempting to increase defense production, but as you noted, it's starting from a fairly low baseline. Um, while actual numbers are really hard to come by, uh, a general consensus among experts that looked, have looked at this issue uh, estimate that Russia could manufacture around 250 to 300 tanks a year prior to Ukraine. Um, at that level, given the massive loss they've incurred over 1,900 tanks already, uh, it would be very it'd be, uh, unable to replenish its loss anywhere near <coughs> the kinds of losses that it's incurred. Moreover, efforts to increase production have been hindered as well by uh, inability to import advanced Western machine tools, uh, to import electronics from the West, which are also used extensively in Russian tanks and armored vehicles, and uh, also inability to obtain high-end optics, such as used with their most advanced targeting system, the Sosna U, which uh, uses a French thermal Im imager. So as a stopgap measure, Russia's been forced to, uh, to take other measures, mostly pulling older Soviet-era tanks out of storage, refurbishing them and sending them into the battlefield. Now, while they have been uh, restoring some of their T-72s, uh, they've also reverted to T-64s and T-62s from the, the mid-Soviet era and even a few T-55s from the 60s. As a result, um, Russia's uh, been, been, its overall character and quality of its tank force has declined significantly as it's reverted from its most advanced era force to one that's underpinned primarily from Soviet era systems. Um, Russia's tank uh, forces also declined significantly in size. And this collectively has had a very serious adverse effect on the battlefield. Uh, without their advanced Sosnyu targeting systems, for example, Russian tanks, uh, those that have been fielded with less capable systems, have lost their first fire advantage because they can no longer outrange mm -hmm. Ukrainian tanks. Moreover, some of the older Soviet-era tanks, the 64s and 62s, have much thinner armor and much more susceptible and vulnerable to Ukrainian anti-tank strikes. At the tactical operational level, the effect has been more significant. Russia's ability to conduct combined arms maneuver, which was never all that good even at the beginning of the war, has been further undermined at this point by the uh, significant loss of, of main battle tanks. 
Although I have to point out this is not entirely due to equipment shortages as Russia's inability to conduct effective maneuver was also a result of training deficiencies, deficiencies in tactics and leadership and other factors as well. Instead, though, Russia has shifted to using tanks primarily in infantry support role, supporting small unit attacks on Ukrainian forces, uh, increasingly as using them also as mobile artillery uh, and, and to some extent as standoff weapons using remote targeting that's queued to the tank commanders to, to, to hit targets over the horizon. And also uh, under the uh, force of the current counteroffensive, they're using their tanks as a mobile defense force to try to seal off penetrations and beat back count uh, attacks. Um, my opinion is that given where they are, it's unlikely to change anytime mm -hmm. soon. I think this is what we're going to see from the Russian tank force for the foreseeable future. So essentially, you know, not all tanks are created equal. And it's a little bit like if you went back to an old car model that didn't have an airbag and then you didn't have the rear view camera and other other factors that improve safety of, of you know, the car that we're seeing the Russians uh, refurbish a lot of tanks, maybe build new tanks, but then in certain areas such as optics and other uh, systems that they, they may be deficient. Uh, what about other uh, categories of, of systems? You, you mentioned UAVs, electronic warfare. <coughs> One of the other elements of this, this conflict has been uh, the, the use of, of drones being sort of ubiquitous, both sides using them extensively. Uh, presumably, this has also led to uh, an adaption by the Russian military, increased production, its deal with Iran. So it, Russia being able to deploy drones and then also becoming smarter uh, with and, and, and creative with how it uses electronic warfare. Are you seeing innovation there that is something that, that we might uh, need to be watching out for here in the West? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, uncrewed aerial vehicles and electronic warfare have really come into their own in the war in Ukraine in ways that uh, were not necessarily fully anticipated prior to the war. Um, Russia's a latecomer to the uncrewed aerial vehicles uh, domain, um, but over the last decade, they've made a concerted effort to catch up. And according to uh, reports from the Kremlin, they entered the war with about 2,000 uh, UAVs uh, of various kinds distributed across the service branches and uh, of different types as well, such as the Orlan 10 ISR, drone used for uh, finding and queuing uh, targeting information, um, a series of armed combat drones that can fire precision weapons, and uh, loitering munitions as well, such as the Lancet and Cub, which uh, conduct, as their name sounds, kamikaze attacks on Ukrainian forces. Um, yet, over the first year, first six months of the war, Russia lost literally hundreds of UAVs to Ukrainian air defense, electronic warfare, pilot error and uh, technical deficiencies as well. Um, and uh, as drones on both sides have also proven very susceptible to uh, being destroyed by air defense and electronic warfare especially, within, according to reports by RUSI, which have been confirmed by a number of sources. Most uh, UAVs don't really survive more than their first three to six missions mm -hmm. based on uh, aerial attacks or uh, jamming of their uh, piloting and navigation instructions, which leads them to be destroyed. As a result, the Kremlin found itself facing a serious shortage of UAVs about six months into the war. And um, as a re uh, to, in response, they, they, they 
took a number of measures. First of all, they took a page from Ukraine and started purchasing uh, small commercial UAVs from China, Chinese companies such as uh, DJI, uh, which had already been purchased by Ukraine. Um, these small drones have been purchased in large numbers through distributors and the like and have been used quite effectively on the battlefield of Ukraine. Um, in addition, the, the Kremlin announced uh, efforts to increase production with Putin himself announcing a one trillion ruble import substitution program to uh, fast track the, the increases in production of drones. Um, they also started building these first person view drones, which can be assembled from uh, spare parts of readily available parts and flown into targets by uh, single operators, hence the, the name first person view. Um, for the most part, uh, Russia has been able to sustain a relatively high tempo of drone operations despite their losses. And the reason being is by shifting to some of these, these uh, systems, uh, they've actually shifted away from uh, requiring deployment of high-cost weapon systems that are more sophisticated and take time to build to low-cost expendable items, which um, have allowed it to uh, continuously to maintain a a good, good, good capability and good, good tempo of operations despite significant losses. Um, drones have been of major importance for the Russian campaign in Ukraine. Um, ISR drones provide critical targeting data for Russian artillery by uh, uh, finding and then queuing back targeting data to Russian uh, fires control uh, nodes and then that distribute the strike coordinates to uh, different batteries. So it's been a critical role in Russian artillery. And Russian artillery, of course, is, is, the, uh, mo the, is what I would say is the center of gravity for Russian operations in Ukraine, given that we're embroiled in a war of, U of attrition here. <laughs> Armed combat drones and loitering munitions, including some of these first-person view drones, have also been quite effectively <clears throat> at uh, providing an additional strike capability for Russian forces. And have, uh, inflicted considerable damage across the battlefield. Um, given their importance for artillery, if, if uh, Ukraine could find ways to more effectively degrade Russian drones, then that would go a long ways to neutralizing their artillery, which is one of the main things keeping them in the battle as effectively as they are. And this in turn could open up additional opportunities for Ukrainian forces to maneuver. Maybe, Paul, just a, a final question before we turn it to, to Lisa and John. Give sort of a cumulative assessment. What, what, how do you assess Russia's ability to now conduct uh, potentially offensive operations, whether it's in the Caucasus, whether it's, it's a, a, around the world or toward NATO? What, do, what are you seeing, at least in the, in the short term? Right. So as mentioned towards the end of the report, we also took a look at this question of how significantly have Russian equipment losses and ammunition shortages affected its ability to project power in other areas? And what we elected to do was to look at some three recent campaigns that Russia had conducted, including the February 2022 relatively small-scale CSTO intervention in Kazakhstan, uh, as requested by the government there to um, help the government suppress uh, dissident force, which had taking control of parts of Almaty. We also looked at Russia's uh, expeditionary operation to Syria, and then finally Russia's campaign in Georgia. And then we also considered, could Russia do something beyond the, this, this 
this, this, this scale of operations. And what we concluded was, for the most part, Russia can still conduct these kinds of operations, although the Georgia war would be a little more challenging. So in Kazakhstan, what Russia did was dispatch about a thousand troops and uh, associated equipment to the country using military transport aircraft as part of a combined CSTO <laughs> operation. And given the fact that it's such a small force with uh, limited equipment and Russia still maintains its military transport fleet, uh, we felt that Russia would be able to do this despite the ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, do, do operations such as this as well. For Syria, that was a larger scale operation, but still reasonably manageable. In that operation, Russia dispatched around four to 6,000 troops to Syria to help in the civil war. And they also uh, sent a, a rotating force of about two squadrons of combat aircraft, um, some ground forces, artillery units, and, and other such resources. Uh, we also concluded that given the scale of the, of the campaign, provided that the Bosphorus remained open and Russia could continue to um, access a port in the eastern Mediterranean to provide logistics for that kind of a force, uh, concluded that Russia could probably carry out that kind of an operation mm -hmm. as well. And then finally looking at Georgia, this one's a little more challenged because Russia entered the Georgia war in 2008 with about 25,000 initial troops, um, over 1,000 main battle tanks and armored vehicles, a whole, a whole host of supporting equipment. And for Russia to be able to do that immediately, given the kinds of losses they've incurred in, in Ukraine, would be a little more challenging. So uh, absent exigent circumstances concluded that Russia could probably pull this off by drawing more heavily on equipment and storage and reserve forces, but it would probably preferably take them a year or two to kind of to muster that kind of force. Um, but these things are very contingent. So if Russia felt that this was and there's an existential challenge in the Caucasus. Uh, it's conceivable that they, they could potentially carry out such a force, especially if the tempo in Ukraine should decline to some, port, some portion. For larger operations against NATO, uh, against even something of the scale of Ukraine, don't see that in the cards anytime soon. Russia's going to have to spend significant time to reconstitute their forces before they'll be able to pull something like that off. Great. Paul, thank you so much. I think that's a great segue, Lisa, John, to, to your report, uh, Agile and Adaptable U.S. and NATO Approaches to Russia's Short-Term Military Potential. Lisa, I want to start with you. Maybe you could just sort of outline uh, the, the broader thrust of the report and what, what you all found when looking at the Russian military and its impact on how NATO and the U.S. should think about, uh, think, think about planning. Max, thanks so much. I, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I just wanted to say thanks so much for including John and, and Hannah and me in this collection of papers. Um, it was really a pleasure for us to, to contribute to this study. Just by way of background and, and, and following on from what Paul said, we were given a, a task, a kind of exam question, which was to look at your first report, I think, in this series, Out of Stock, Assessing the Impact of Sanctions on Russia's Defense Industry and to reflect on what the implications of your conclusions might be for the US and for NATO. Um, so just um, where was our starting point? We started with the conclusions there, many of which have been um, explained in further detail by Paul that there, uh, the sanctions are creating some shortages in higher end and for foreign components, but in, um, and this has forced Russia to rely on lower quality alternatives 
and other assumptions that the state-backed import substitution and domestic productions have not been entirely successful. And so uh, you conclude that, you know, as the quality of Ukraine's equipment is improving, um, the quality of Russia's weapon systems in the battlefield is, is degrading. At the same time, you know, your report concluded that the Kremlin is adapting to these sanctions using pre-war stockpiles, older equipment, as we've heard effectively, and then relying on a, a handful of third parties that have been uh, willing to supply, uh, you know, enough equipment for rudimentary drones, EW, etc. So we sort of, that was our starting point. Um, if Russia is going to choose an attritional fight here, it can retain the capacity to fight for the longer term, even as the quality and the accuracy of its fires um, fades. So where did we start? Um, we first started by thinking about um, what might be missing in your conclusions that would be relevant for the changing nature of the Russian threat to the U.S. and to NATO. We didn't look at the situation on the battlefield, as Paul did, but specifically looking at the alliance's new, renewed focus on defense and deterrence, um, the new concept and the new plans, et cetera, et cetera. So what did we think was missing? Well, we we thought about the more advanced capabilities that Russia holds in reserve, the conventional capabilities that haven't seen, uh, that haven't been fielded in, in, in the Ukraine war for reasons that we can we can discuss. We thought about other capabilities that Russia has in reserve, particularly its underwater underwater capabilities, cyber, anti-satellite, and other levers that it has for hybrid attacks, launching hybrid attacks uh, against the alliance in the United States. We also thought about uh, the significance of Russia's nuclear stockpile, and this is where Hannah's fantastic work has been woven into, into our analysis. Um, she's written a piece on, on War on the Rocks in July on this topic, which I recommend that you check out. And then finally, what we thought was missing from this analysis or not covered adequately was the potential role of the People's Republic of China, of the PRC, which has been limited so far. Um, it seems Beijing isn't really prepared to take on the costs of uh, fully supporting uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, it isn't clear where China is going to go in this regard, but the consequences of a changing course would be enormously consequential for the U.S. and for the alliance's um, efforts on um, defense and deterrence. So then um, we kind of created a, a matrix. We passed an outline back and forth for thinking about the implications for the U.S. and NATO, and we divided it into strategy, operational planning, defense planning, and then force posture and force structure. And we sort of tried to take these take these conclusions that you made in turn and draw some, some conclusions for how we might want to think about um, the implications for the threat in those different areas, and then draw some conclusions. And I think briefly, in sum, our conclusions are that, as Paul mentioned, the uh, idea of a major conventional attack against a NATO ally at this point is 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 not likely. I think there are, I've seen differences in in um, timeline over how long it might take Russia to reconstitute. I'd love right. to hear your your thoughts on that. We didn't go there, but that the threat is not uh, unidimensional and it is changing. And I think our our conclusion is really about the importance of making sure that our approach to defense and deterrence, both as the United States and in the broader NATO context with our allies is agile and adaptable. Um, 
I can start with our sort of six points on how we think the threat to the alliance is changing, or we can. Um, yeah, why don't, why don't you? Yeah? Why don't you outline that, and then we'll turn to to, to John. To John. To, yeah. Okay, sure. Um, so in the first section of the paper, um, you know, we tried to develop the these ideas on what what your, the conclusions of your first paper mm -hmm. might mean for the threat to the alliance, and the first one. The first conclusion is if the sanctions are raising costs for Russia to access sensitive dual-use technologies, including U.S. origin parts, they will struggle to field high-end capabilities. And then this emphasis on um, indirect fires would continue. Secondly, uh, we looked a little bit more closely at how Russia is trying to use uh, trade diversions, this Eurasian roundabout, to secure some access to dual-use items and concluded this will allow them to keep supplying, as Paul mentioned, drones, jamming technology, navigation equipment, et cetera, et cetera. That's something we need to take into account. Third, um, looking at their performance on the battlefield, um, we saw that there's a struggle to synchronize cross-domain operations, and we think this is likely to, to remain the case over the short term. Um, especially in light of what we've seen about the organizational leadership challenges, the casualty rates, and the departure of some of the better trained military personnel on the Russian side. Fourth point, um, Russia seems to have these more advanced tanks, more advanced uh, fifth generation planes and reserves. It's been fielding, the tanks it's been fielding, some of them predate Russia's 2011 initiated modernization program. And we haven't seen the appearance of their fifth generation aircraft in the war. There are lots of plausible reasons for this, which I'd love to, to hear um, also from you. But the U.S. and NATO still need to, to consider these um, in our defense and deterrence planning. Then we thought about what other capabilities they have um, that have had a limited role in the, the land war, at least in Ukraine, but which the U.S. and the alliance need to continue to consider. This is their underwater cyber capabilities anti-satellite capabilities, and of course, its uh, nuclear arsenal. Mm -hmm. These are capabilities that Russia can still use against the alliance, uh, if anything, for, for coercion, defense and deterrence purposes, critical infrastructure, uh, mine laying, or other sort of hybrid attacks against the alliance. There's some uncertainty about, uh, at least in my circuit circles, about how well Russia has been able to use its cyber capabilities. Um, in the war, and my understanding is that their, you know, Western analysis tends to be more speculative than anything else on that. Mm -hmm. But there are reasons to believe that their cyber capabilities are weaker um, as a result of organizational challenges and uh, infleeing and infighting with so many people um, fleeing Russia, especially since the partial mobilization in space. GPS jamming and spoofing are probably the key challenges I think facing NATO and facing the U.S. There's a need to understand the capacity of Russia's space assets, how they might be used, and how Russia might be held accountable if it does cross a line in that area. And in the nuclear realm, I think we can we can talk about that later in the discussion, but um, Russia is likely to increase its reliance on, on, on its nuclear arsenal, um, if anything, to reestablish a kind of nuclear coercive reputation. Um, and then finally, uh, the threat to the U.S. and NATO is, is really dependent on Russia's partnerships. There are a set of sort of non-Russia-centric factors that we wove into the analysis, and that's the role of the third-party suppliers, um, which has been significant. We heard already about loitering munitions from Iran, artillery shells from the DPRK, 
uh, ammunition from South Africa. And then this brings me back to the point about the, um, the uncertainty around the future role of the PRC in, um, in supporting, openly supporting um, Russia's uh, war efforts if it decides to do so. So in our report, the first part of our report, um, we go over these six factors and des describe how we think the threat to the U.S. and NATO is changing as a result of the conclusions in your, your previous mm -hmm. papers. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for that. John, I want to bring you in to maybe, if there's anything you want to add to what Lisa said, but what, so based off your assessment, what should U.S., Europe, and NATO be doing and in, in thinking uh, in, in, about uh, when it comes to the, the threat posed by Russia? And I think this is really gets to a, a critical question because uh, what is the threat that Russia essentially poses to to Europe and, and the U.S. in the next, you know, five years, ten years? And that seems to really be um, at the crux of a lot of uh, uh, you know think a lot of strategic uh, thinking when it comes to uh, the U the direction of U.S. national security. So does it sort of do we have time? Okay, let's just tilt to the Indo-Pacific. We don't really need to focus on the European theater. Uh, or do we need to sort of still be cognizant and concerned that Russia will adapt and develop in, in ways that perhaps we don't quite expect? It's, it's investing in certain capabilities right now, becoming uh, more uh, uh, expert in, in uh, EW drone warfare. Uh, so perhaps the threat that Russia poses maybe in a hybrid domain has actually become more acute uh, in the short term. So I'm throwing a lot out there, but how do we in the West, in US, Europe, NATO, uh, how should we be uh, uh, shifting and adapting to this new world that we find ourselves in of a conventional war happening uh, on the European mainland? Well, Max, thanks so much. I think the only thing I would add to Lisa's excellent uh, summary of uh, sort of how we started and the opening parts of this is to just add my thanks to you and to CSIS and to US <laughs> European Command for, uh, for sponsoring this work and for asking us to take it on. Yeah, the, the issues that you're wrestling with, you know, if we look at this from a broad strategic perspective, as you know very well, are hotly debated right now in this city, right? Whether and how the U.S. should favor one adversary over the other. In thinking about how the U.S. looked at this, and then maybe I'll turn it over to Lisa to um, <clears throat> further uh, clarify maybe how NATO examines this. But in thinking about how the U.S. deals with this challenge, now this evolving challenge, you know, our view is that at the strategic level, uh, Washington's got it about right in terms of the national defense strategy and the, the, the broad thrust of that, right? The, namely, viewing China as the long-term pacing challenge, uh, but also viewing Russia as the acute threat, uh, at least in the short run, probably through the midterm. I think one of the takeaways that Lisa and I had in looking at the work of Paul and yourself uh, standing on the shoulders of, of Russia experts in this town and elsewhere is that the Russians, although down in some respects in terms of uh, conventional land power perhaps, are certainly not out. They remain a learning adversary, their grand strategy hasn't changed, and they've got a number of capabilities, as Lisa outlined, that haven't really seen much exposure in this war. So from that perspective, we think that maintaining a focus on Russia as a major threat makes sense, but it's an evolving one. And so that's how we try to think about, okay, how should the U.S. respond here? But let me get back to what what we cover in the report. And really, we examined the U.S. approach here in uh, in four different ways. We looked, as I mentioned, first and foremost, at the strategy. And here we think the U.S. approach is about right. 
uh, with specific regard to uh, the NPR, which came out in conjunction with... That's the uh, Nuclear Posture Correct. Review. Nuclear, <clears throat> nuclear Posture Review, which came out in conjunction with the National Defense Strategy. Uh, we think that approach makes sense. That is to strengthen deterrence, uh, but also to keep the door open for arms control efforts. At the same time, uh, as our collaborator uh, Hannah Note notes, uh, you know, we have to really be uh, wary about and keep our eyes open for how Russia will look to reestablish its nuclear coercive credibility. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit worrisome. But broadly speaking, we think the strategy, uh, the strategic approach uh, makes great sense. Uh, that said, the one caveat we would add is that our sense was that the interconnectedness between the European Eurasian theater and the Pacific theater are perhaps undervalued or underappreciated in at least the unclassified version of the NDS. Mm -hmm. There's really only one line uh, in the NDS that's devoted to that. Our sense was that you know, you, you, we really can't overstate the impact on China and our strategic competition with China of a Russian inability to achieve its goals vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, these theaters really are much more closely aligned. Lisa mentioned also the role that uh, that China might play as a potential third-party supplier. Uh, we haven't seen significant evidence of that yet, at least en masse, but the phrase that we use in our study is that if China were to become the, uh, the arsenal of authoritarianism, that could really change the nature of the fight uh, that we see Russia engaged in right now. So a, a greater appreciation, we think, at the strategic level of the potential persistent synergies between these two partners is probably a good idea. Now, the second area we examined vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. is with regard to its force structure in Europe. Now, we know that in the immediate aftermath of Russia's second invasion, February of last year, that the U.S. dramatically increased its presence in Europe. Uh, and, and we think that that, uh, that all made sense in terms of the capabilities that were placed into Europe, the capacity that was moved forward and specifically pushed into Poland and some of the Baltic states, Romania as well. That made great sense. But now as we look to this period that we study in, the, in this report, the next two to four years, we argue we need to see some refinement here vis-a-vis -vis this force structure, specifically trying to augment the capabilities and capacities on the part of the U.S. that respond well to what we see in terms of the residual Russian strengths, right? And which our European allies maybe don't have or don't have enough of. So what does that mean? I think there are four areas that we outline specifically. First, Counter UAV, and it's been discussed, it remains a strength, a growing strength of the Russians. Uh, Anti-armor, we know that a lot of our European allies, for example, have turned over a lot of their anti-armor capabilities to the Ukrainians to support their efforts. We should be in a position to try to backfill some of that. EW, we've also discussed that. The Russians are, of course, experts in that. And, of course, uh, integrated air and missile defense <clears throat> to possibly include directed energy uh, weapons. We know, for example, Patriots are in uh, short supply and high demand, not only in Europe, but in other theaters. And so we need to look for alternatives uh, to that in terms of U.S. force structure in Europe. The third area that we examined was the posture of the U.S. in Europe. Uh, here we think, again, there can be some refinements. For example, the U.S., we argue, ought to consider perhaps moving Fifth Corps, all of it, forward stationed permanently into Europe. As your audience probably knows, uh, there's a fifth core element stationed currently in Poland, uh, but its, uh, its headquarters remains here in the U.S. We think for a variety of command and control reasons, we can get into it um, in further discussion if you want, that the entire fifth core needs to be forward-based in Europe on a permanent basis. The U.S. might also consider doing the same thing 
with regard to an armored brigade combat team, which is currently rotationally um, based in Europe. That is every nine months, one rotates there. A full combat aviation brigade, which is also currently just rotational deployed. Long range fires, uh, the kinds of things that we see in uh, parts of the multi-domain task force based in Germany. And then finally, core level um, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assets, or ISR, and core level logistics support. All these things, in our view, should be forward stationed on a more permanent basis in Europe. And then finally, in terms of building up Ukraine, we suggest in the report that the U.S. needs to maybe begin to look toward uh, this midterm, the four years of this two to four year time frame we examine in the study, um, and try to think about how both the U.S. and its allies can more quickly uh, train and equip Ukrainian forces, especially in areas with regard to border <coughs> monitoring, uh, air and maritime and uh, land domain awareness, and finally, offensive cyber and EW. All these are areas in which we need to see greater emphasis, we argue, in this short to midterm in terms of how we establish Ukraine as a bulwark mm-hmm. of, of defense for itself and then um, subsequently for the rest of uh, Europe going forward. Let me maybe start with um, about the, the the Fifth Corps headquarters uh, to Europe and basing that. Maybe you could unpack that a little bit. What what would that do? What, what advantage would it have in in relocating the the Fifth Corps headquarters to to Europe? Well, first, it made great sense for what um, what's been done to date, right? I mean, we should give credit where credit is due, and that is, I think that. Uh, the Defense Department, our defense enterprise, recognized that we needed to strengthen command and control capabilities over in Europe, especially uh, among ground forces and especially as we responded to the increasing or changing threat environment in Europe. In other words, having merely U.S. Army Europe, a four-star command, overseeing a number of separate brigades, uh, in some cases division headquarters, uh, that was really overwhelming, I think, in terms of command and control. The span of control was frankly too great. Moving Fifth Corps back into Europe, where it had long been for decades, really, during the Cold War, uh, but withdrawn then uh, in this interwar period, that is, between the end of the Cold War and the uh, 2014 first invasion of Ukraine. Moving that back into Europe ameliorated a lot of this span of control issue um, and uh, it made great sense. But I think the challenge that we've seen is that uh, the Fifth Corps element that is forward stationed currently in Poland uh, with its main headquarters still back in the U.S. here. Uh, you know, we've seen this with regard to rotational deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan and, uh, and other theaters. That is namely the, the personnel that we move forward for these nine-month rotations. They're on the ground just long enough to become uh, cognizant, uh, familiar with, really experts in the theater. They get to know the, the local mayors. Mm-hmm. They get to know their counterpart commanders. And, and, then, they... and then we pull them out, yeah. right? Uh, we lose that expertise and familiar, familiarity. Moreover, we signal to both our allies and the adversary um, perhaps a less enduring commitment. I mean, don't get me wrong. The Poles are glad to have Fifth Corps forward there in Poland, right? And as I've said, it makes great sense to have that. But I think we can do more uh, to both, again, reassure the allies and signal to the adversary that our commitment is an enduring and long-lasting one. Now, there's a cost issue here as well, right? It's not cheap to base Americans overseas, as we know. But uh, I've done some work and others have well regarding uh, this issue of fiscal cost. And my studies, my efforts have shown that, that in fact, when it comes to especially equipment intensive units, mm-hmm. think about uh, armored brigade combat teams, combat aviation brigades. If we're sending those units with their equipment back and forth across the Atlantic every nine months, 
it actually costs less to forward station those units in Europe. Uh, and if we look at, at governments like Poland or Romania, or even the Baltic states, they're so eager to have us, they're willing to build the infrastructure that we need, and we've seen evidence that they're actually doing that. And this has been, I think, a, a major topic of, of trying to deploy, deploy more Americans eastward. Now, there's the NATO-Russia Founding Act that was ag agreed, uh, where basically we wouldn't permanently deploy forces, and hence, so we have our rotational presence. I think when I was in the State Department, we would assure the Poles that this is a persistent presence, and then we would go to the Philippines and said, no, 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 this is, this is all rotational, um, where you know, we have to use different language with different, different allies and partners. But in this case, it feels like the NATO-Russian Founding Act has run its course, and that uh, if that's what's holding back a, a permanent uh, deployment, it's it shouldn't it, you know cost shouldn't be a reason. And so, do you think this is something that that we'll see uh, uh, going forward, where, where U.S. Army in particular uh, really takes takes the lead and is is more uh, forward uh, deployed uh, in in the east uh, of Europe? Yeah, the NATO Russia Founding Act really has been, I think. Um you know, it, it's, it's, it's been kind of a limiting factor, at least it was, I should say. In my conversations, and I'm sure Lisa hears the same thing, when we wandered the halls of NATO, even though it hasn't formally been um, uh, abrogated, NATO hasn't formally withdrawn from the NATO-Russia Founding Act, I think within NATO today, ever since February of last year, it's viewed as a dead letter. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's inhibiting us any longer. Furthermore, you know, I think everybody in NATO recognizes that the NATO-Russia Founding Act you know, there, there were parts for that to the Russians uh, that limited the Russians as well, um, or that they were obligated to follow through on, and that was namely not to invade their neighbors and dramatically change the security environment in Europe. That's out the window, obviously. I think what we're going to see moving forward on the part of the U.S., and especially the Army, but more broadly the Pentagon, is now a refinement. Um, as, as we were recommending, I think that's underway now in trying to think about, well, what kinds of capabilities do we really need forward? Uh, you may know, your audience probably knows, that the, the National Defense Strategy said the Americans are going to focus on uh, three specific uh, areas or capabilities in Europe. Command and control, fires, and ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. These are areas where we believe we can add value to what the European allies bring in Europe. And I think that makes sense. Uh, we've suggested maybe there might be uh, consideration also of, of anti-armor permanently stationed. Mm -hmm. But I think we'll see some refinement here uh, moving forward. And I think that's on the minds now of senior leaders in the Pentagon. Yeah, it, it struck me that the national defense strategy, you know, the reporting around it uh, was that, you know, it was ready to go basically in February of, of 2022. Uh, it was delayed because of the war. But then when it was uh, put out with the national security strategy, which apparently changed quite a bit because of the war, the national defense strategy didn't really change. And that struck me as sort of bizarre because I feel like we've learned a lot of lessons, uh, both in the the you know how how uh, how you expend munitions in a very rapid clip, the importance of 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 a defense industrial base, the importance of having uh, munitions and other equipment that 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 can be attrited, and in that lesson, I, at least on the defense industrial base side. Uh, isn't in really the national defense strategy, but strikes me as very important when it both comes to the U.S. defense industrial base preparing to have lots of munitions for any sort of conflict, but also on the <coughs> European side. And on the European side, one of the things that I think we're seeing, and we've put this out in other reports, is that 
you know, Europeans have provided a lot of aid to Ukraine. I think it's sort of been underappreciated, but they're pulling from their stocks and their stocks have been fairly, uh, you know, weren't deep to begin with and now are, are extremely depleted. So maybe you could, uh, Lisa or, or, or John or Paul, on, on the defense industrial dimension here and, and when we look out over the next five years, uh, it strikes me that we have a huge task to both just kind of rebuild our stockpiles, but then also focus on on some of the the new threats. So when we talk about air and missile defense, uh, Germany pushing the Sky Shield initiative, maybe you could talk about the defense industrial base dimension of this as well. Yeah, I'll take a short crack at it and then maybe turn it over to Lisa. It might be a good segue into looking at how NATO is examining this. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I, and I think here in the U.S., you know, our Pentagon, our defense enterprise, has really gotten that message, frankly, right? Yeah. Uh, and we've seen lots of evidence of uh, the administration, the Pentagon, moving out on dramatically ramping up our production of uh, artillery, ammunition, for example. Uh, the Army, in particular, is taking great steps to try to um, uh, really get that defense industrial base on steroids. Now, that can't happen overnight. Um, I think we benefited the U.S. by having uh, defense production laws on the books that can help to uh, incentivize industry in this way if the administration chooses to use them in that way. In contrast, we know that a lot of our allies don't have those kinds of laws and regulations. And so we see, for example, uh, industry being perhaps a little slower to respond in Europe in some cases. This is something where I think an area where I think the U.S. can maybe pressure allies mm -hmm. to uh, – to put those kinds of laws and regulations on the books uh, and to try to uh, to ramp up production. Now, the fact that the, uh, that the U.S. as well as NATO allies uh, have been very careful to not characterize what we are doing in this, this entire effort as uh, a proxy war, a war between NATO and Russia, that's been a positive thing, I think, um, overall. The net has been positive. But the downside is, I think, at least among our European allies, it, I think, inhibits them from uh, maybe putting their economies on more of a war footing. We know very well the Russians are. Uh, we've seen evidence of that. There was some reporting in the New York Times just last week that uh, you and Paul have referenced where uh, the Russian economy is on that war footing now. Among NATO allies, we're not at that same stage. And maybe there I'll pause and, and turn it over to Lisa to maybe talk a bit more about about that, the, the allied aspect. Sure. Thanks, John. I, as you were speaking, there was one thing I did want to say about the, the NATO-Russia uh, founding act, and that yeah. is, I, you know, I agree. I, I don't even think we mention it in the paper, but it isn't something that, um, that we hear much about anymore. But there is one part of that NATO-Russia founding act that we do recommend that we hold on to, which is this is in the nuclear dimension, that the alliance should sort of stay the course on its nuclear policy and despite Russia's um, any steps it might tend, it take to try to recover that coercive reputation, we stick to the three no's, the no intention, no plan, no reason to deploy nuclear weapons on, on the new um, in the at territory of the new allies. I did want to just say a couple of things about uh, from the alliance's perspective, mm -hmm. coming back to our report on particularly on strategy and operational plans. Um, we looked at the alliance's strategy, which of course is guided by the NAC, the North Atlantic Council, and then expressed in the strategic concept, the 2022 Madrid strategic concept, and noted uh, the dramatic shift in the alliance's approach uh, to Russia, which we think is the right approach. Um, similarly to the U.S. NDS, we found that there was probably not enough attention to the China-Russia relationship in the alliance's 
strategy. And actually, there's even more uh, frustration, I think, between us on this, that the uh, even though European positions on, on the PRC are moving towards those of the U.S. In, increasingly quickly as, as well, there still is this reluctance to think about how China might pose a threat in Europe to, today. Mm -hmm. And that is in some ways holding the alliance's strategy back from being sufficiently adaptable in this regard. Um, on the nuclear front, um, we argue that, again, as I said, to sort of resist a reactive approach to what we're seeing coming out of um, coming out of Russia at the moment and to sort of stay the course. One thing we didn't discuss in our paper, but which I sort of thought up as we were coming over here this morning, is about how the alliance might think of linking the defense and deterrence efforts, this uh, kind of new primary core task of the alliance with longer-term support from for Ukraine, because as John said, um, building the Ukrainian future force is, is, a, is an important element of defense and deterrence for the alliance itself. Let me say a couple things about the operational plans. Um, we're thinking primarily about um, NATO's defense and deterrence, the sort of new post-Madrid concept and, and regional operational plans, as well as the new domain-specific plans and how we uh, are they adequate for this changing short-term um, military threat to the alliance. Um, they mark a huge departure from the past, particularly in mindset, moving from a contingency planning mindset to really concrete operational plans. Um, and also, these are based on a real threat as opposed to sort of um, not tied to any threats whatsoever, like NATO's previous approach, which was uh, around the level of ambition, two major joint operations and six smaller operations, like kind of, of um, K4, for instance, or S4. So um, these new plans are um, an important step um, for the alliance to deal with this with this changing threat, but we argue that they need to be um, really much more agile and not based on a static picture of the Russian threat to the alliance. They need to be evolved through routine exercises, the incorporation of intelligence on Russian capabilities, capacity, morale, cohesion, leadership challenges, and lessons learned almost in real time on the battlefield. So um, that's what I wanted to say about the mm -hmm. operational plans. Maybe, John, you want to say a few things on the alliance's defense planning process and how it might need to evolve as a result of what we're seeing on the battlefield. Yeah, this is really right now very much a moving target. Um, the alliance has, as many of you may know, a, a, a rigorous defense planning process in place. Uh, it has for many, uh, many years now. Um, and we've seen since the first invasion of Ukraine in uh, 2014, we've seen uh, the NATO allies really step up uh, their willingness to fulfill the capability targets that are part of that NATO defense planning process. Um, but that process right now is undergoing a significant um, uh, change. It's in the middle of change. It's evolving because of the new NATO force model. Mm -hmm. uh, NATO announced in uh, its Madrid summit last year, 2022, that it was going to essentially uh, replace the NATO response force um, and its other force construct, force um, management construct with this new NATO force model. Uh, it's in the process now of thinking through, given the broad objectives the alliance has to achieve, uh, courtesy of the operational plans that are now approved, uh, what capabilities are required in each of the regions that now NATO is going to be focused on across Europe. There are three areas, a north, a center, and a south. <clears throat> and uh, the defense planning process is absolutely critical to trying to match the capabilities of the allies with uh, the, 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 the goals uh, of those operational plans. 
Uh, we argue in this study that that process uh, <clears throat> needs to remain dynamic. It needs to consider what uh, what the nature of the Russian threat looks like uh, as it evolves. We know that that nature of that threat is changing. And so even though the operational plans are now approved and they're guiding the defense planning process, this really needs to be an iterative process where we see NATO routinely going back to update, test, uh, update its plans, test them through tabletop exercises, incorporate lessons learned, and then refine, recalibrate the capability targets that fall out of that. The alliance is wrestling with that right now, right? Because the the, the potential um, list of uh, of new capability targets that are required to deal with the evolving Russian threat um, could be significant. And we'll see over the next few months as this plays out within the alliance whether and how they respond. Maybe we'll, for the last half an hour, we'll sort of transition to pick off, pick up that, that point that you just made about NATO and the alliance and, and sort of where we're headed. It, it strikes me that in the in the initial weeks, months of, of the of Russia's invasion, that there was a sense of, oh, wow, war could happen with NATO at any moment that if Ru Russia's invasion, invasion of Ukraine is successful, then we'll have this hostile actor with lots of hubris uh, uh, at, at NATO's uh, doorstep. It already is, of course, in the Baltic states. Uh, but but this will then need, require us to urgently rush out and just recapitalize our forces. So the Poles, instead of participating, for instance, in the, the future European tank, go out and buy Korean because the <clears throat> Koreans can get them tanks uh, uh, sooner rather than later. But now that Russia has sort of been bogged down in a war of attrition, as, as Paul's report outlines, it strikes me that we there's a bit more time to make the right investments, be a little bit more strategic in how NATO and Europeans are going about the recapitalization of their forces, uh, and also about how, how we are, 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 are postured. Um, so do we have time? That is sort of one question. Uh, then the other aspect of this, we've sort of you all have brought up Ukraine. I've sort of not uh, uh, talked about what is the real elephant in the room, the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Uh, but it strikes me from just a broader strategic perspective that Russia is going to have to be consumed with the war or the threat posed by the threat, quote unquote, posed by Ukraine uh, uh, to Russia holding what it has uh, indefinitely as long as this this war is going on. And so hence, the U.S. providing and Europeans providing assistance to Ukraine in some ways is fixing Russian for forces on on the on Ukraine as opposed to the broader NATO threat. So that's sort of two different threads here. Paul, maybe I could bring you back in uh, to, to address either of those topics. Um, but uh, in, in anything else that you heard from 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 John and Lisa's presentations? Yeah, I think those uh, two topics are linked. Do we have time? And I do think that Russia, given the, the magnitude of their losses, the fact that they're embroiled in Ukraine, they're under heavy sanctions, they're finding ways to circumvent them increasingly, but it's a somewhat of an unstable supply chain. And uh, their, their economy has managed to, to maintain a reasonably stable GDP, um, and they are mobilizing their defense industry as, as well. Um, I do think, though, that they're going as long as the war continues on its current track uh, with a substantial um, number of forces engaged in 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 southeastern Ukraine. For the foreseeable future, it will be difficult for Russia to do more than to sustain its operations 
at least until it manages to solve some of its defense industrial capacity limitations. And there's also a will issue and a manpower issue that goes along with that for them to um, to really be able to to it, it, to develop their forces in a way that's, that restores to some degree the threat that existed prior to the invasion. Um, now that I want to also tie this in with what Lisa said, Russian military has a lot of capabilities that have not been used in Ukraine, and um, I should have been a little clearer when I talked about whether. You, uh, Russia constitutes a continuing threat to Ukraine from a conventional standpoint, from the kinds of scenarios that were discussed previously the uh, last few years about like a bull rush into the Baltics or some other similar nature across the Savalki Gap. Those are probably, would probably be fairly challenging for Russia over the near term. But they have a lot of other capability that hasn't really been used. They have naval forces. They've increasingly uh, increased their ability to project power using their naval forces to greater distance, including both ISR as well as strike uh, severo-dense submarines, for example, which are extremely quiet and have long-range land attack capabilities. Their air force, the, their air force is still largely intact, mostly a fourth generation force, but they're developing new weapon systems, new fifth generation systems as well. They have new designs that for the ground forces, which haven't really been been uh, developed simply because of the cost factors, but over time, much, if they uh, invest in, decide to go into a more modernized force as the way forward at post-Ukraine, then you could see them uh, betting more heavily over time on things like the Armada tank, the Boomerang, and some of the, the more advanced systems. Uh, they're, they're, <laughs> they've learned a lot about how to conduct a long-range precision strike campaign in Ukraine, despite the fact that it hasn't achieved that much strategic effect as of yet uh, one doesn't mean that it's not a, a, potential, a potentially very potent set of systems that Russia could develop. One thing they did there was rather than relying so much on their high-end attack systems that they entered the war with, Caliber, KH-101, and Iskander, they've gone to a more balanced mix of um, strike systems, more sustainable, lower cost, um, perhaps less capable, not enough of them to actually achieve the kinds of strategic effects they were hoping for, but those are lessons learned that they will probably take back with them eventually as well. And I'll close by just saying that there's a lot of debate about how long it will take for Russia to reconstitute its forces. Yeah. We touched on that earlier. Okay. And there's a lot of numbers thrown out, four years, five years, ten years. But I think that ignores a basic question, which is what kind of force is Russia going to rebuild? Will it try to go to a higher-end multi-domain force to try to leverage some of the technical capabilities that it's used and has seen used against it in Ukraine? Uh, I think Shoigu in, I can't remember the precise date, uh, a few months back indicated they're looking to expand the size of the force to field a force of 1.5 million strong, which sort of implies that they're planning for uh, a more protracted campaign where they're going to need more more sustainable personnel and and larger amounts of weapon systems and the ability to produce them at a sustainable pace to to maintain operations and ammunition supplies and so forth. So um, it's a difficult thing to project until you answer that fundamental question. Right, and and also Russia now being on sort of a, a war 
uh, economic footing, uh, really shifting, focusing its defense industrial production or its industrial production on defense, you know, if, if the fighting sort of crawls uh, or if we do find ourselves in a stalemate situation, that Russia will have that defense industrial capacity to sort of keep producing and will it sort of throttle back or just continue, I think, becomes uh, becomes a real question. Can I add one more thing? Yes, please. I think one of the things we also should take into account is Russia's outreach to Iran and North Korea, mm-hmm. coupled with an already fairly well-developed relationship with China. Um, for the first time, we're seeing the war sort of promote some of the things that have been of some concern to U.S. strategists and policy planners, which is the potential for uh, an authoritarian axis of some form. Uh, it's easy to overstate that threat and the relations b- between Russia and all of these countries are still limited by various factors, but it does seem to be driving <laughs> these powers to, to uh, cooperate more, more closely. I think the big wild card, as Lisa and, and John both mentioned, is China. Uh, they've been holding back on uh, the extent to which they're willing to to, to, to help Russia to uh, improve its capabilities and to obtain more advanced weapon systems and technology, to, although they have done quite a bit more than some people may realize. But they are still constrained by their desire to maintain their economic uh, ties with the West. And that continues to act as a major limiting factor on Russian-Chinese relationships, which otherwise are being propelled closer together by a variety of forces. Can I jump, just jump I'm just going to give a oh, quick okay. plug, though. Uh, so uh, we did a really good episode on our podcast, Russian Roulette, which everyone should should pick up their phones, should subscribe to Russian Roulette wherever you get your podcast with uh, our, our China colleague, uh, Jude Blanchett, uh, um, uh, a few months ago, looking at Russia, China, and we both came at it in some very different directions, where I said, why isn't China providing, doing more to help Russia? You know, Russia has asked for it. There's a partnership with no limits. And then Jude's attitude was, well, why would they? Uh, what was sort of in it for China? So you kind of have, I think I think you're right, that is the, a big question of does China do more to gradually help Russia and they could really swing uh, swing things from a defense industrial side. But, but Lisa, I Yeah, I just wanted to add a, a comment on the, the numbers floating around about how long we think it might take Russia to reconstitute. And another point we make on the nuclear side in our study <clears throat> is that it is reconstituting? It will be modernizing it. Russia's uh, will be modernizing its nuclear forces, and while there are some arguing out there that for economic reasons Russia may not want to engage in any kind of a, a race with the U.S. or with, with the West, it isn't clear. This is a point that Hanna makes in the study that they're guided by the same rational economic cost-benefit calculations that we might have assumed so in the past, and. Um, their overwhelming priority, it seems, is to sort of stand firm in what Russia sees as a, a confrontation with the U.S. and NATO over Ukraine. So just adding the nuclear modernization to the question point. about reconstitution. You know, Go just ahead. on this point about China, though, Max, I think uh, yeah, this is, I think, subject to uh, significant debate now among the China watching mm-hmm. community in this town and elsewhere. And that is the degree to which the Chinese economy is uh, either peaked or, or maybe is still rising. Uh, there was some open source reporting, for example, just, just this past summer in places like Bloomberg and The Economist about the Chinese economy really being in, um, in, in bad shape, frankly. Uh, and I think we are benefiting from that. We, the West, are benefiting from that uh, in this speci- specific issue area. 
I think the Chinese recognize they've got more to lose than to gain uh, by opening up the defense armament spigots to the Russians, because I think they're afraid that if they do that, it will just uh, cause their export markets to even contract further, specifically in North America and Europe. You know, they're just as dependent on uh, reliable customers as we are on reliable suppliers uh, for all the things that we trade with China. And so I think for the time being, at least, um, we're really, the West is benefiting from this lack of uh, robustness on the part of the Chinese economy. Yeah, I think one of the, the bizarre side effects of President Macron's trip to, to Beijing and, and to China earlier this year, which was, you know, gre greeted by a gasp for most uh, U.S. Uh, China, China experts, uh, was that it did kind of make clear that, look, if China stays out of, of, of uh, at least explicitly supporting Russia and providing armaments, then, you know, there could be a, a positive relation to relationship there with Europe and Europe, the European market, which is 450 million people, uh, incredibly large and important to the Chinese economy, as well as important to the European economy. And I think that message sort of got through that if China was going to be providing arms that were going to be killing Ukrainians, that the Europeans would react very negatively to that. And I think that gets to the kind of maybe back to the Ukraine point that the strategic importance of Ukraine is both, I think, at least the way I see it, is well, you're attriting Russian forces, you're attriting your major adversaries' forces, even if you know, Ukraine isn't able to make advances. But in the longer term, you're also, if Ukraine is not able to, quote unquote, win the war outright, you are still forcing Russia to have this real strategic problem that it is going to have to focus on. Because every time that Ukrainian forces get stronger, Russia will have to have to think about how it matches that for a future upcoming Ukrainian offensive. And I think that makes a lot of strategic sense, at least if I were in NATO headquarters and thinking about our sort of future defense planning, particularly when I look at European forces needing to kind of rebuild their capacity. You know, Max, I think it makes not only sense from NATO's headquarters, but also from uh, the city. Right? Yes. If you're sitting yes. in the NSC mm -hmm. and you're wrestling with how to manage and balance the demands of these two theaters where we have vital interests, <clears throat> namely Europe and the Indo-Pacific, I don't think it's an either or. I don't think we can afford to do that. I mean, I know there are some here in town that, that argue that, in fact, we cannot afford from a fiscal perspective to devote equal attention to both. I think we need to look at the European theater and the Indo-Pacific theater, and Lisa and I argued this in our study, as far more integrated and connected. And one of the best ways to undermine uh, China's uh, efforts to uh, challenge the international system is to uh, diminish the power of one of their they're great partners in that effort, and that is namely Russia. And so if we can continue, uh, maybe even to uh, amplify the efforts we're making now vis-a-vis -vis the Ukrainians, strengthening them again, turning them into a bulwark of defense and, um, and independence vis-a-vis -vis Moscow, that's only going to redound to our benefit, the West's benefit, in our long-term competition with China. Yeah, I think there's, there's no doubt that Russia sort of the, uh, is a really strong cheerleader for anti-U.S., anti-Western uh, push and would, would if Russia was able to sort of rebuild its military, settle the war in Ukraine, however, however that emerges, there's no doubt that it would be a strong partner to China if there was ever, uh, I think, a, a China-Taiwan contingency as Russia's sort of anti-Western uh, attitude, I think, is, is sort of fully baked in. This, I think, we maybe want to pivot to, to mention that we are actually having a fourth uh, paper in the series come out actually today, 
um, which I'm sort of uh, admits is sort of waiting so long to talk about it. But this report, it's called Seller's Remorse, The Challenges Facing Russia's Arms Exports, uh, looks at the arms export industry, which is critical to Russian foreign policy, and Russia now sort of really needing to focus on its defense uh, industrial production for itself, uh, it's going to impact Russia's ability, we find, uh, to export uh, a lot of its uh, equipment abroad, and that will impact sort of Russia's foreign policy reach. One of the things we actually find in the report is that actually this uh, Russia was impacted well before uh, the war in Ukraine, the CATSA sanctions of 2017, uh, which enabled the U.S. to sanction countries that bought Russian uh, military hardware has been really effective as it, it's simply deterring countries from, from buying Russian. Now, there are real exceptions to this where countries that feel that they have no alternative. Uh, and one of the things we find is that this isn't sort of a, a magic elixir uh, for uh, getting Russia to stop or uh, selling arms, for instance, to countries in Africa, where a lot of countries that ha that are, are unable to buy Western equipment for human rights reasons, they see Russia as sort of uh, as the supplier of first resort, and Russia's uh, willing to to supply uh, these countries, particularly ones with atrocious human rights record uh, that are anti-Western, and that this is of such maybe not of high dollar uh, figures, but uh, provide a real foreign policy and strategic benefit to Russia because these countries then can act as sort of partners in blocking active actions at international uh, venues such as the UN. Uh, so I think that's something that Russia will continue to prioritize, particularly if it's able to uh, continue producing uh, equipment at, at the low end that will be uh, valuable to, to those partners. But that's sort of a brief uh, segue to talk about that paper, but uh, I think it highlights an important point of where Russia is sort of headed in its overall geopolitical alignment. <clears throat> Paul, you've mentioned its its connection with Iran and, and others. Uh, I'm curious, uh, John, Lisa, Paul, when you look at sort of Russia trying to sort of counteract uh, the isolation that it's facing, obviously trying to to maintain relations with with China. But where do you see some problematic efforts by by Russia, or where do you see Russia sort of turning uh, globally to sort of avoid some of its uh, its military isolation? I can take a crack at that, <clears throat> at least to start things off. So, even in the arms sale arena, I wouldn't necessarily count Russia out. <clears throat> Um, there are Russia's arms sales are peculiar in that uh, prior to the, the war in Ukraine and its recent uh, problems with heavy sanctions, Russia maintained arms sales relationships with a, a very large number of countries, 91 according to CIPRI, according to their own numbers, over 100. Um, at the same time, Russian arms sales were heavily skewed towards its largest clients, with the top 10 customers accounting for 80 to 90 percent of all arms imports. The rest of them buy one-offs here and there and so forth. Not much from an economic or military perspective, but very important from a foreign policy standpoint because arms sales promote strategic and security relationships. And they, they often, uh, once a country buys arms, then they're committed to a longer-term relationship of uh, buying parts and upgrades and training and and new systems and so forth. So um, the restrictions that Russia has incurred because of CATSA sanctions, even more since the invasion of 2022, are no doubt they're going to cause Russia's arms ex exports, arms sales per se, to contract quite a bit. 
only those countries that have the courage and ability and uh, negotiating levers to sustain major imports, such as India, for example, or Turkey, which was willing to defy NATO to buy the S-400, mm -hmm. but, and even China are likely to make major arms purchases of the kind that we've seen before for, for the foreseeable future. There'll probably be smaller purchases. One of their strategies is to, is to sell dual use goods. Um, for example, the uh, heavy lift helicopters that can be used for uh, firefighting and disaster recovery, but also have military application. Another thing that Russia's arms sales strategy contemplated was a shift away from arms sales per se, sales in iron and technology, as they put it, to, I'm sorry, iron and, and weapon systems to technology and intellectual capital. And we've seen this with China where a lot of the arms sales have been pushed underground and are taking the form of technology and co-development and technology transfer arrangements, which is another way to circumvent sanctions because you can fly under the radar screen to a certain extent, although its sustainability is a little more suspect because once you've passed on the crown jewels, then there's not you have to then find other crown jewels that you can pass on to. to yeah, you, you sort of sell your intellectual property. Uh, to countries that then can can ramp up production. And one thing we highlight actually in this report to, to watch out for is that Russia trying to use some of the, the defense industrial capacity that's been built up in other parts of the world, particularly India, um, where, where there's production of Russian equipment and Russia trying to buy back some of that equipment. We've seen some of that with, or there's been reporting, Myanmar and other places that Russia trying to buy, you know, some of the optical systems for tanks that it may have sold in the first place. But you could imagine if defense industrial production lines start ramping up elsewhere around the world, Russia would say, okay, we've licensed you production, but we hope to sort of get some of that back. And that's where I think something that our, our sanctions watchers should be um, should be looking mm -hmm. out for. In the 10 minutes that we have left, I want to maybe uh, go sort of a final round of sort of summing up the conversation. Um, at maybe thinking about where, where we need to get to uh, five to 10 years from now in terms of both um, uh, where US and NATO should be thinking about uh, being where we, uh, where they should be structured, and also in terms of, of Ukraine support, and how do we think about that and, and sort of balancing the short and longer term <clears throat> needs of supporting Ukrainians, uh, both for their counteroffensive, but where do we want the Ukrainian military to sort of get to uh, longer term? So, yeah, yes, okay. Lisa. Briefly, I, <clears throat> and by way of wrapping up, you know, you asked a question a little while ago about do we have time? And to sort of link that with the question you just asked, you know, I think we do have time, um, but it doesn't mean that we can be complacent. So I think we need to, the, from the alliance perspective, continue the investment, the pressure on the investment, the uh, cooperation, and the longer-term support for Ukraine. But one thing that hasn't come up in this conversation, which is the sort of concluding remark I want to make, is yes. about the importance of the political unity that we've seen across the uh, across the alliance and as a result of this conflict over in, in as a result of the conflict in Ukraine and that how important that unity is as a um, as a sort of bedrock for our defense and deterrence posture overall so i think that would be my final remark you know, let's let's continue yeah. to develop and and deepen this uh, political unity within the alliance of course while strengthening Ukraine's 
edge on the battlefield tomorrow, building out Ukraine's uh, defense forces with them, um, and eventually uh, welcoming them into the alliance. No, I think that's a great point. I mean, if we were having this conversation this time last year, a, a major topic would be would would European solidarity mm. collapse when faced mm -hmm. with you know uh, extremely high uh, energy prices over the winter? And in fact, what we saw is actually uh, European support has remained high despite Europeans having cut back on their energy uses. It wasn't uh, simply that they had a warm winter. It was also that they cut demand. We saw Europeans turning down the thermostat, actually making you know sort of tangible sacrifices. Uh, and recognizing that that was uh, that the reason why that was happening was because there was a war uh, in Ukraine that was was uh, that the you know because of Russia's legal invasion. So I think that's a great point that the Western unity I think is a, is a critical factor in 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 deterring Russia and and in, in in this whole conversation. Yeah. Uh, Max, I want to pick up on uh, the thread that Lisa just mentioned that the, the time issue. Uh, and offer some uh, final remarks in two areas. First, what uh, NATO and the U.S. might might be doing or, or could do, and then finally, uh, what we do vis-a-vis -vis supporting Ukraine's efforts. First, I think we make clear in our study, Lisa and I do, that that there really is a window of opportunity here that the alliance and the U.S. Um, as part of it need to take advantage of. Um, you know, I think uh, we we think Paul's uh, analysis of what the short-term uh, conventional threat in a place like the Baltic states is. Um, is spot on, and that is namely that threat has diminished, frankly, right? I mean, the Russians are consumed right now with the land fight in, in Ukraine, and so uh, the most acute threat the Russians pose to NATO right now, or at least prior to February 22, was in fact that um, sort of uh, bolt from the blue land grab, um, either in Lithuania or Estonia or Latvia. The, the possibility of that has been diminished now. We've got a, a window of opportunity now to get the posture uh, the capabilities in Europe, but also notably the capacity in Europe, right? The alliance has committed to uh, a new sort of approach to deterrence, deterrence by denial, at least in the Baltic states, those that are at highest risk. But we've argued that that's, uh, they're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we can use this window in which the most <clears throat> acute threat the Russians pose to the alliance is diminished, use this as an opportunity to get these things right in terms of the capabilities we have on the ground. We've spoken about counter UAV, EW, counter armor, uh, but also, the, again, the capacity. Most of our allies are uh, investing, uh, once again, in their defense uh, base, uh, but mostly in, in capability building, not necessarily capacity building. Mm -hmm. We need to be pressing down on uh, both of those areas right now. Um, and then my second point with regard to how we <clears throat> approach supporting Ukraine Lisa and I are involved in working on another project right now that examines the allied role in supporting Ukraine. It's going to be published by the Army War College Press um, in the coming months. And one of the things we're finding is that the alliance, and especially the U.S., we're really low on uh, measures of effectiveness. What are we doing uh, to assess whether and how what we're doing for Ukraine <clears throat> is effective? Sure, we can assess yards gained or kilometers gained on the battlefield, but there's more to it than that in terms of assessing how our train and equip efforts are really paying off, where and how. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are good reasons why we limit our footprint in Ukraine, good operational reasons, even good strategic reasons. But I think we've got to be more creative in Washington uh, and also in Brussels in thinking about how do we assess what it is, how we're doing over there, and what more the Ukrainians need and how we can better deliver that going forward. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. Uh, as someone who worked on the security assistance <laughs> enterprise for a while, you know, this is one of the, the, 
you know, an, sort of an unprecedented example of of uh, post World War II uh, security assistance and the amount we've provided, but it also creates sort of opportunities for great lessons learned and how we sort of structure our whole entire security assistance enterprise. And and so applaud that work. And I think uh, when you when you reach a conclusion, we'll we'll have you have you back here to to talk about it. But Paul, maybe uh, we'll give you the la the last word. Thanks. So we actually did make some recommendations in the report, which I can uh, summarize some of those briefly because I do think those are still valid. Um, in a war of attrition, as we had noted earlier, artillery is the center of gravity. This is the thing that is sustaining Russian forces in the face of all of the high-tech weapons and, and uh, equipment and training and so forth that have, we've already been delivering quite effectively to Ukraine to get them to this point. But there is still more than we can do. Uh, we can help them to more effectively uh, uh, conduct counter-battery fires. We, there's talk about uh, immediate short-range missiles that could extend the strike capability to deeper into uh, Russian-controlled territory and hit some of the logistic nodes that have been supporting their artillery that were moved back after the HIMARS were introduced, but are now out of range of the HIMARS. Um, so confronting artillery threat directly could go a long ways, but I think there's also indirect options too. Russia, as I mentioned before, relies heavily on drones for uh, artillery support for ISR and queuing targeting information. Um, and they've been able to sustain their uh, fairly high tempo of drone operations, <coughs> providing uh, Ukraine with more effective EW, SHORAD systems, and other, other means to try to degrade Russia's drone capability could then force the, the Russians to fire more blindly. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, Russia relies on EW to counter Ukrainian drone operations over Russian-controlled territory, uh, including strike assets that could be brought to bear to further attrit Russian artillery. And so um, thinking holistically about the package of systems that we can support that could, could help to uh, degrade this important capability uh, I think it would go a long ways towards su supporting them. Then I'll finally close by agreeing very strongly with John. I think you got the right package of things to for to provide uh, uh, for NATO for the U.S. to provide for NATO C2 ISR fires. I might add, uh, you did mention IADs, uh, but also EW and counter EW for some of the same reasons that I talked about. And then I'll finally close by saying, over the longer term, we also have to monitor. We have now China expanding its nuclear capabilities at the same time as Russia's uh, nearing one round of modernization, likely to embark on others, thinking about how to restore their nuclear deterrent. We might start to at least think about, if these countries do come closer together, how we're going to face this dual challenge. Mm -hmm. So I'll close with that. Great. Well, I want to thank you all. It's been a fascinating conversation. I really want to thank you for your work on these fantastic papers. You, uh, the online virtual audience, can get those papers. I also, before we close, just want to highlight that we will have a program here at CSIS offering an executive education course titled Beyond the Battlefield, Global Im Implications of Russia's War in Ukraine. Uh, that should be a, a fascinating uh, course. The course will run from November 1st 
uh, to the November 2nd of this year. So please go to CSIS.org, click on our executive education page, and be sure to submit an application if you're interested. Uh, it should really be a fascinating conversation, which you'll have more of the types of conversation that you that you just had here. So I want to thank you all again. I also want to thank the uh, Russia Strategic Initiative of U.S. European Command for their support for this, this project, which is, has run the course of this year. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for appearing with us, and please join us again soon. Thank you. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.